Hi, I'm Valerie Steele, Director and Chief Curator of the Museum at FIT, the most fashionable museum in New York City. Welcome to our Fashion Culture podcast series featuring lectures and conversations about fashion. If you like what you hear, please share your thoughts on social media using the hashtag #FashionCulture. This is the afternoon session. Feels like the morning session for yeah. me. <laughs> I should have asked you to stay up all night the night before and then cruised in for it. You didn't have to ask me. I did. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to start. I'm going to start with a personal question because why not? We've got you here. You have a very distinctive style, and uh, can you characterize that style for us? No. Try. That's what distinctive means. <laughs> all right. Well, let me put it this way. I wanted to have one of your looks in the exhibition, and unfortunately, you weren't able to lend it. And I wonder, um, why do you think I wanted something of yours, and why were you, can you explain why you were unable to lend it? Right. Well, you asked for a suit. Yes. Right. Um, and uh, in order to, I guess, lure me into the idea, you mentioned other women who were lending suits. This would not be my problem. Just turn it up. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Someone should turn it up. Uh, um, all right, I'll start again. Uh, you asked me, in, in order to uh, get me to agree to do this, you mentioned other women who, whose suits you had. It was suits specifically you wanted. Um, and I don't remember all of them, but one of them was Marlena Dietrich. Yes. Um, and the reason I didn't lend it to you, and I couldn't, was because I do not have enough suits to not ha have one for six months. Um, you again invoked Marlene Dietrich, and then I had to explain to you that she no longer needs her suits. Yes. So. <laughs> and when you're done with Marlene Dietrich's suits, I wouldn't mind having them myself. I know. I wouldn't mind either. Who, who owns those? The Berlin Film Museum owns them. So we've got about six of her outfits. The Berlin Film Museum. No one deserves them less. Come on. <laughs> When, when you first came to New York, you were friends with a lot of older, very cultivated gay guys. And I wonder, what kind of sartorial style did they have? This would have been what, like early 70s? Um, like 70s, 70s. Yeah. Um, it depends which group of people you mean. The ones that are most often cited, I would say, had no sartorial style. Um, I couldn't really tell you what they were. I mean, first of all, what they also had was no money. Um, and although people are saying, you don't need any money, you need money. Um, <clears throat> I really don't remember what they were. I, I mean, we all wore jeans, you know. One of them I can remember what, what he wore, that, that he wore jeans and a black leather jacket and a white t-shirt, which was considered kind of witty because that, those were not the kind of clothes gay men wore. You know, that was a, uh, and that was kind of the beginning of this kind of what became an excessively butch look. Um, but I really, other than that, I don't remember what they wore. I mean, extravagance in clothing and, and, you know, and calling attention to yourself with your clothing was kind of separate from this group, yeah. and it was considered to be a kind of fallback position if you weren't smart enough. Ah, okay. The usual fashion, flamboyant fashion is dumb stereotype. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't just fashion. It, was, it wasn't just flamboyance in clothes. Yeah. You know, it was a general flamboyance. Right. Um, flamboyance isn't the word. It was what used to be called showing off. What about lesbian elegance? Um, 
What about it? <laughs> Can you characterize it? Talk well, it is true. That's just why you wanted her clothes. Now, if you're asking me if New York is full of people who look like that, then no. Uh, it's not full of people who look like that now, okay? Because it isn't just a thing of clothes. You know, and in fact, it, it maybe doesn't even have to be a thing of clothes. Um, obviously, it's easier to use clothes because you can purchase them. What about elegance itself? You were joking before that there wasn't any elegance. How would you define elegance? No, I didn't say that. A man asked you yes. for the information on elegance, and I said there is no information on elegance. Um, elegance really, is, I think, is a natural expression of character. You know, it certainly isn't what most people seem to mean it is, which is a kind of gentility, you know, which is a kind of, I don't know, tinny idea of elegance, you know. It's not something that you, the reason people find it hard to define is because they rarely see it, okay? The reason they rarely see it is because it's intrinsic to someone. It's not something you can replicate. And, uh, you know, this culture, I don't mean just clothes, is entirely a culture of replica replication and nostalgia. You know, so one thing, you know, I mean, Marlene Dietrich, if you want to use her, any people like that, they were not regressive looking. They were not looking back, even though some of the styles were from a long time ago. It was incredibly progressive, you know, so that it's, it's so many, involves so many things that I could not describe it to you, especially at these prices. <laughs> um, Warhol and Halston are two of the figures that we have represented in the show. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this Warhol style vis-a-vis -vis Halston style, the kind of looks that they were associated with. Well, I mean, the Andy style, you know, was a factory style. You know, it wasn't just Andy, you know, and it was, I mean, now I have to always say this to people who are young, you know, who can't tell the difference between someone my age and someone who would be Andy's age if he was alive, um, not the same age. Um, uh, so that it was, for someone Andy's age, which he must have been in his 40s when I met him, and I was like 20, um, it was an excessively youthful way to dress, mm -hmm. because men at that time dressed like adults. Um, so that it was jeans and Brooks Brothers shirts and, you know, I mean, I wore penny loafers. I don't remember if he did or not. Um, the, the really, the clothes horse at the factory was Fred Hughes. You know, and he was a spectacular dresser. Um, and he wore blue jeans, but he paid much more attention to his clothes. You know, Halston is not someone I was very interested in ever. I knew him, you know, um, I know that now he's considered to be, you know, Leonardo da Vinci or something, but um, <laughs> I mean, I thought that he was, you know, kind of a hick, frankly, um, which is why there was that overemphasis on exclusivity, you know, like, there was, you know, just a tiny group of people around Halston. Um, the great thing about Halston was he had this house where he had huge parties, which was always good. Um, but there was, I thought, even at the time, even though the clothes were very modern, because they were made of plastic, okay? They were made of ultra suede, which was kind of polyester, which is plastic. Um, so, and he had these great looking models around him, Karen, and I don't remember the girls, all the girls were around Halston. Um, and said so that there was a whole, you know, around Halston was a whole look, not just the way he looked, the way the girls looked, the way the clothes looked, the way his house looked, the way his offices looked, where that's where the shows were. And, I mean, that's where all fashion shows were then. Um, and it just, you know, I was around because he was around, um, but it was not something that I found magnetic. We've got uh, one outfit in the show, which is a cockette 
outfit from that San Francisco performance art group. And I know the Cockettes came to New York once, but it was very, very different than sort of New York cross-dressing looks. I wonder, do you remember what the scene was like when the Cockettes came to New York? Vividly. I remember it very well because there was a huge amount of advanced publicity for this. In an era when this sort of thing, you know, being drag queens, had no publicity because it was illegal. You know, it would be like saying some heroin dealers were coming to New York from San Francisco and there was a lot of advanced publicity. So, <laughs> and I don't remember why this happened. Um, and I think it was because, probably you won't know who this is now, but there was this guy named Rex Reed. Um, there may still be a guy named Rex Reed, I don't know. Um, and he wrote for Esquire, which, you know, was a big, you know, magazine, like that regular people read, you know. And I think he wrote about the Cockettes. He saw, and I think also Capote maybe said something about having seen them in San Francisco. Um, so I don't remember who organized this, but someone organized a bus to go to the airport to meet them. I was on that bus. So I was on that bus to go to the airport to meet them, and there was zero security in airports then. Um, and so we were sitting in the, uh, whatever you call it, the gate, you know, where the plane, people get off the plane. And they came off the plane from San Francisco in drag, which w you were arrested for dressing like that. You know, not just in San Francisco, but everywhere. They, but however, they weren't in drag really to look like women, like candy, you know, which is probably more acceptable, but they just looked insane. To the, and they had beards. Right. You know, that was, I believe, an innovation of the Cockettes, or at least it wasn't common in New York for men to have this, you know, beard, which is what could be more butch than a beard. Um, and they didn't really dress like women. They just wore some articles of women's clothing. But they came off the plane um, screaming and banging on drums, singing, and at the first people I see get off the plane is a woman with her son, a little boy, and she has her hand clamped over his eyes. <laughs> Which means that he was like that for like six hours on the plane. Um, I also got a job as an usher at the opening of the Cockettes. Um, and this was something I really tried to get because it was paying the unbelievable sum of $90, which was almost my rent. Um, and the reason it was unbelievable, I discovered I never got paid. Um, so <clears throat> they were an enormous flop in New York. They were in New York for about a week before the opening, which was in a theater on 2nd Avenue, I can't remember where, and they were wined and dined, and then they appeared, and no one in New York could believe how terrible they were. I mean, because we had, you know, Jackie Curtis. In other words, they, they were terrible because they were kind of dopey, you know, it wasn't funny. I mean, it wasn't enough in New York to just get dressed up and make, you know, yell. Um, and they were kind of, I believe, actually driven from the city. <laughs> well, I suppose San Francisco and New York were sort of quintessentially different kinds of cities. I mean, I never- They were polar opposites. Polar opposites. Yeah, just like they are now. <laughs> I still haven't come around to San Francisco. <laughs> Yes, I remember I lived in a feminist commune there and it was lots of hairy legs. So it was similar, like beards for the guys and drag and then hairy legs for all of the women and very different. They hated the Velvet Underground when we played it out there. Really? I mean, it's just a completely different. They deserve Silicon Valley. <laughs> <laughs> well, our, one of our big questions that we asked at the course of the exhibition is, 
Um, why have there been so many gay fashion designers? So I wanted to get your take on that. Why yeah, do you that's a serious question. Mm -hmm. Why are there straight fashion designers? <laughs> that would be my question. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right. And why are there so many straight men at fashion shows? Because really, it's like going to a hockey game now. Yeah. So I mean, can't something be yeah. done about that? Yeah. You're an educator. <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> I, I can't answer this question. I mean, uh, why are there? I mean. Now or then? Anytime. Because, but not any time. Because no. okay. you know the world has changed in regard to certainly the world has changed much more in regard to people who are gay than it has in regard to fashion, right. because there are so few options in fashion. Let's face it, um, which is why people keep going backwards. And um, so that you know, I mean, I'm trying to think. I don't really recall that there being any straight designers when I was young. I mean. They could get other jobs, by the way. See, that was also one of the reasons, yes. you know, they could have other jobs, yes. you know. So there were very few jobs or professions or fields that you could be in if you were gay um, without pretending to be straight. Right. Um, nevertheless, of course, many gay fashion designers pretended to be straight. Um, and, but uh, so that, that was one of the options, yes. you know. I mean, now you can be anything, a priest. If someone asked you for advice on how to get on the best dress list, how do people get on the best dress list? People vote for you. Yes, people voted for me. Yes, I, I didn't really realize, I mean, I didn't really pay attention to it. If I'd known people were going to vote for me, I would run for mayor. <laughs> okay, if it was the same people voting as vote for the best dress list, I'd be the mayor. I would rather be the mayor. I, I like being on the best dress list, but I would prefer to be the mayor. You would rather I be the mayor, too. I'm sure. More power. <laughs> Doesn't get much power being on Best Dressed. Zero. What do you think are the worst new fashions that have come up in the last, say, 10 years? Usually, I think worst fashions are old ones. You know, I mean, I really can't stand to see things come back and back and back and back. You know, I mean, probably by the time I was 30, um, I probably had seen platform shoes come back already three times. You know, especially I'm always shocked that something that was bad to begin with keeps coming back. You know, it's as if, you know, every four years Richard Nixon's a president again. You know, so there's, you know, I would like to see something new. Of, co of course, as I said before, you know, it's not an endless cavalcade of options, you know, clothes, because clothes you have to wear. You know, so that it doesn't, you know, lead to endless self-expression. And when it does, I don't want to see these clothes. So, um, so I mean, to me, I would say shorts, okay? But I, I don't mean the kind of shorts, but I really do not want to see adult men wearing shorts. I don't want to see them. I don't want to see them. I don't care even if they look great in shorts. Um, because truthfully, most people look horrible in shorts and they don't belong in a city. That to me is that maybe the biggest change is you never used to see no one wore shorts in a city. It was considered a suburban thing. To me, it's still a suburban thing. So I don't want to see. To me, I see people in shorts. I think they're going to a cookout. And they are. <laughs> so baseball hats. You know, all this type of childish dressing, you know, I really can't stand it. It, it looks horrible, unless you're a child. 
you know. So it, it, uh, I also think there are too many children, but, um, <laughs> but I know you didn't ask me that. So I would prefer, like, the one good thing is I noticed that more men wear suits now. Like, it suits, you know, I wish that the suits fit them, but, <laughs> um, you know, those little tiny suits. Um, <laughs> hardly any of you really are able to carry it off. You know, it's funny, it's a funny idea, um, but most people can't wear them, even though you do. <laughs> and any best clothes? Clothes that rise above the mass of mediocrity? You mean, you know, that are generally available? In our to lifetime, that are available now. I don't know. I really don't look at clothes in that way. I'm sure there are some. But maybe if you, well, if you, go, well, if you, you go showed me some pictures, I could tell you. You go to Seville Row, for example. You can get well, tailored. My so clothes are yes. from an English tailor. Exactly. But I don't go to London because I'm an Anglophobe. <laughs> <laughs> they come to New York twice a year, and that's when I order my clothes. Brilliant. So it takes a year and a half for me to get a suit. What do you think is the appeal of leather? What do I think the appeal? Is there some other appeal of leather I was unaware of? Well, there's, we've got a lot of leather in the show. A lot, a lot of leather from the 70s to entering into high fashion, like yes, Versace. Sex, that's the appeal. That's it. There's no other appeal. It's durable. <laughs> <laughs> it lasts longer than sex. <laughs> Which is why, at a certain age, you should give it up. It's actually sad, leather, at a certain age. You know, I mean, I see people and I, th I feel sad. For them, not for me. <laughs> what should they take up instead? Some useful profession. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um. What's your feeling about t-shirts with messages on them? Uh, despicable. <laughs> Actually, like in 1971 or 72, I wrote. That's when they appeared. Okay, so I know, ex I know exactly when they appeared because the second they appeared, I wrote something about it for an interview, which is in, I think, is in Metropolitan Life. And I couldn't believe it. It seemed so unbelievably dumb. You know, before that, well, first of all, I mean, people didn't routinely wear T-shirts as shirts. You know, they were kind of underwear. So, <clears throat> uh, but things, the writing on them, horrendous. You know, because it was what I saw instantly, because I'm a prophet, um, was that it was an act of commerce, you know, and that is something I don't want to see on clothes. But obviously, I lost. We have also a bunch of wedding dresses since post-DOMA, a lot of gay and lesbian couples are getting married. And I wonder... I've heard. What's your take on wedding clothes? You mean... For gay marriages or in sure, general? Let's say start with for gay marriage. I've never been to a gay wedding. I mean, I'm not boycotting them. I've never been asked to one. Um, I don't think I know anyone who's had one. Um, or people might not tell me. Okay. <laughs> 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 to me, I have to tell you, it's astonishing the idea that gay people want to get married. It's astonishing. To be, who wants to get married? Um, anyway, apparently they do. Uh, Wedding clothes in general? You mean, I mean, 
sometimes they look great. I mean, I remember the, the best wedding dress I ever saw in my life um, was uh, this girl named Alexandra Auchincloss, who got married at St. John the Divine, which is a spectacular place to get married. Um, and uh, Carolina Herrera made the wedding dress. It's the best wedding dress I ever saw. Um, she looked great. It was a very conventional wedding, um, presided over by the bishop, etc. So um, if you're asking me, you know, people who have some sort of novelty way of dressing for their wedding, uh, I'm not an expert on this. It's like people writing their own vows. Well, you've given a lot of what you might call etiquette advice to people over the years. No one listens to me. <laughs> Here's another chance. What kind of etiquette advice would you give this audience full of many young people about what they should and shouldn't do in terms of fashion? You know, I can't see them. I know, we'll turn off the lights soon. I could, you could imagine you know, them. I'm, 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 I'm more likely to criticize and to advise. <laughs> criticize them. Yes, which I'm not gonna do. Oh. No advice at all for no. them, etiquette? I, I'm, you know, I'm not that confrontational. I, I, I believe in talking behind people's backs. Okay. <laughs> that way they hear it more than once. I'm going to have you turn up the lights, and we're going to have a chance for the audience to ask Fran some questions. You turn up the lights? We can't see you. All right. So if you've got a question, the ideal thing is to come walking down to one of the two microphones so we can hear you. There was a recent study Thursday that said that single men, known as bachelors, not in New York or California, change their sheets four times a year. You know, I can't how, do you, how do you I, think I can't that affects understand you. fashion? I can't, I can't the first part. The first part, he was saying that he'd read some article that bachelors change their sheets four times a year, but I didn't catch the right. second part. And I want to know how you think that affects fashion. Okay, the question was that he read that bachelors change their sheets four times a year. Yes, they studied 21,000 men outside of New York and outside of L.A. and San Francisco. Okay, I have to tell you, I have zero experience of this. <laughs> the, nothing could be of less interest to me than how often bachelors change their sheets. <laughs> but I believe you. That is not a fashion issue. <laughs> Wait, that's a health okay. issue. We have another question. <laughs> we have another question. Hi, Fran. When I was here earlier today uh, for Simon Doonan's speech, someone mentioned you and said they had heard you speaking about a lot of the critical talent that we had lost during the AIDS epidemic, but you were also speaking to something called the critical audience, and that sounded super, super interesting. She's referring to earlier this morning, someone referred to you and said that with the AIDS crisis, we'd lost not only a lot of artists, but also a, criti a critical audience that's necessary for art to thrive. So you're asking about that concept of critical audience? Yeah, I think I said that in this, there's a movie that I did. Um, yeah, because no one ever talked about that. Everyone, you know, when everyone died of AIDS all at once, um, many artists died all at once, um, and you know that was noticed. But no one noticed that the audience for these people died all at once, and that changed the culture as much as the artists dying. Um, no one seemed to notice that, of course, because they died. So uh, it just never was remarked upon. Um, 
but it had a huge effect because artists, whether they do it uh, uh, knowingly or not, collaborate with their audience. Even if you don't see the audience, even if you're a writer and they're reading your book and you're not with them. Um, because your awareness that your audience is knowledgeable makes you better. Yeah. Okay, so, um, I, I mean, I, don't, I can't, can't really see, but um, to go to the New York City Ballet now, um, and to have gone when Balanchine was alive and Jerry Robbins was alive is an astonishingly heartbreaking experience, not just because of the loss of these two great choreographers, which of course is what anyone would notice, but because the audience is gone. So the audience that comes now to the New York City Ballet knows nothing. The second the da a dancer puts a foot on the stage, they applaud. I mean, it used to be, Bershnikov, if he hung in the air for 20 minutes, there'd be a smattering of applause. <laughs> um, and, I'm certain that it was very hard on the dancers to know that, you know, I mean, the ballet audience, I bring it up because they were a vicious audience. Um, not in their behavior, they were completely dead silent, um, but in their, what they knew. And that's because they loved the ballet. They loved it, okay? And if you love something, but you can't do it because they weren't dancers. And they, the people who could do it should do it perfectly, okay? And that whole idea of not just of an artist and audience, but of art in general has completely evaporated. Um, I'd like to see that come back instead of platform shoes. Right. <laughs> Hi. Hi. I, I have to excuse, the sound was bad, so I couldn't hear everything that you were saying about. I can't hear a thing you're okay. saying. <laughs> Your suits. My suits. The suits that are made for you. Yes. I imagine that you are very particular about how they're made. I wonder if you could tell us uh, any of the specifics about how you like them made, the fit, the detailing. Um. Okay. Um, well, the, the, the tailors that make my suits, uh, they're called Anderson and Shepard. They're pretty, they're old company. Um, they never would make clothes for women. I mean, I asked many men that I know who use them for many years, to make me suits, they refused. The last, in fact, perhaps only woman they had ever made clothes for before was Marlene Dietrich. Um, they were the same people there, by the way, the same tailors as made them for Marlene Dietrich. Um, and they just refused. They refused, they wouldn't do it. And finally, someone convinced them uh, to make me some clothes. The first time I went for a fitting, the tailor who was fitting me would not touch me. And he was fitting me for a vest, which is really, really hard to fit on a woman. And finally, I just said, Mr. Hitchcock, you have to touch me. You have to, okay, you just have to, otherwise it's not gonna fit. Um, but he didn't really touch me and it really fit perfectly. Um, and then a young boy I know who uses him as a tailor said that he won't touch him either. So apparently it's just a general not touching situation. Um, so what they do is, um, first of all I have to say that I know of almost no human activity as pleasurable as choosing fabrics. I, I can't, th I could spend my entire life looking at swatches, um, discussing shades of gray. This is, I shouldn't have used that actual term, but um, <laughs> I forgot that it entered the culture. Um, so I find it a wholly pleasurable and enjoyable experience, um, taking the fabric to the window to see what, what color. Do you think this is bluer or redder? Is this greener? Um, but it takes forever. Yes, I did tell them the first of all the clothes they made me, they made one suit that never fit, couldn't fit, kept going back, you know. Once I believe that a suit doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. 
You have to either donate it to someone who is shaped like this, which in the case of the suit was no one. Um, <laughs> you have to give up on it. You have to take a loss on that suit. Um, otherwise, I believe what they do, since I've never been to this tower in London because I do not go to England, um, they make um, a, a dummy. What, I don't know if it's still called that, but they make a form of you. Um, and so that form of me lives in London, so I don't have to. Um, and since they made that form, um, there's like, now I only do two fittings, there used to be three. Very rarely the clothes don't fit because uh, the clothes are made on you. So even though, unfortunately, as we age, among the many hideous things is that your body changes, um, not for the better, uh, they still fit. You know, they, they might like, I mean, mine still fit. Um, I might not be at the point at which they no longer do, but uh, I think at the point they no longer do, you should not go out. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, there's certain things I like that, you know, other people don't like. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not a person who like says, I, you know, there's certain things I leave to them. Like, I never tell them about the lining. Some people do. You know, I th think you're good at that. You do it. Um, I always ask for, you know, I always use these, you know, buttons, these, these uh, bone buttons. I always ask for the light color ones. They didn't want to do it because they always use dark ones. Now I do light ones. I have seen other people with these light buttons. So obviously this seems to be the prime, primary influence I have on the culture. Okay. So this is like six buttons. people, by the way. You know, so. Will you please join me in thanking Fran? Thank you.